0: Hi, welcome to Interviews Podcast. I am passionate about business. I used to run businesses for others before launching my own. And I have always asked myself one key question. What is the secret recipe to properly structure and successfully run a business? So I am on a quest to find out through insightful conversations with entrepreneurs all around the world. Follow me on my journey to crack the entrepreneurship code. Interviews is sponsored by Bertoli Digital, a Wix website agency built for startups, individuals and SMEs. Bertoli Digital is also Finland's first certified Wix expert and Wix partner agency. 1% of all the agency's project revenue go to Global Footprint Network to help change how the world manages its natural resources and respond to climate change. If you want to know more, ww.bertolidigital.com or contact at bertoligital.com. This is interviews number twelve. Today I am with Adam Fayet, founder and director of International AMG based in Japan. Hello Adam. Thank you for joining me.
1: No worries, Lawrence, it's a pleasure.
0: So tell us a little bit about your journey, please.
1: Okay, well, I've been an expat now for close to 10 years, and I came to China to start with before living in Southeast Asia and then, indeed, uh, moving to Japan. And I've also spent time in Europe as well. So uh, I started out with a company in Shanghai, which is a British-owned company which is focused on expat-related financial matters. And then I started my own company, a couple of years ago. So, you know, I've been an entrepreneur now for a couple of years. Uh, before that, I was working in a more typical uh, environment, although I've never worked for a huge multinational. Uh, so, that's the kind of basic things about my journey, really.
0: Why did you decide to set up your own company? What were the triggers? Uh, I
1: think uh, some of the main triggers were the way the world is going. In terms of even before this kind of coronavirus thing, which we're currently going through, uh, of course, we're going from an analog world to a digital world, right? Mm. And many industries have adapted to that. But I found that the financial niche was one area where, people weren't adapting. And I was, yes, maybe the big firms like Interactive Brokers or those kind of DIY uh, firms were, were doing that, but the vast majority of firms are doing the very traditional way of you know, uh, networking face-to-face, very uh, antiquated techniques. Yes, yeah, some of which absolutely can work, but these days, most people, and it's not, not just young people, want to do things online, they want to do things quickly, but they still want that personal touch. Um, so if you look at what's happening around the world in all industries now, you know an Instagram influencer can uh, you know get ten times more traction than the person who's uh, popular in the Chamber of Commerce, if not a hundred times, because they can scale online. Um, so I thought, well, there's a need in the expat market uh, in finance to have somebody who can do things remotely and globally. Um, And that was really the main trigger, I would say. But also, it was a lifestyle thing as well. I never wanted Mm. to do a lifestyle business from the point of view of, you know, just being, let's not say lazy, but not doing much work. But I always wanted to work hard doing my own business. But by the same token, I wanted choices. So say, for example, if I decided, right, this week I'm going to work on a Sunday, but I'm going to, I don't know, sleep in until 11 a.m. on Friday because I have no meetings and I want to have a, you know, a long social uh, event the night before, that's fine. So I also wanted choices, even though I didn't want a lifestyle business per se.
0: And have you been able to implement that, have the choices, the freedom?
1: Uh, Yes, uh, but probably less so than the first objective, from the point of view that the first objective, scaling online and so on, Uh, I found that much easier than the second objective because if you think about it, they're slightly contradictory to an extent. Because if you the more you scale, the more work you have, right? Mm. Um, Usually, although, of course, with the online world, you can obviously have uh, you know mitigating steps, you can hire freelancers, and whatever. And I'm sure we'll get onto that more later in the interview. But by the same token, still, you have more work the more you succeed with the first objective. So I have to a certain extent, but by the same token, I'm probably busier than ever. But that doesn't mean I can't have more freedom. So, for example, I very seldom accept very early meetings in the morning, um, as an example. And obviously, I can say no to any meetings I want. So, to a certain extent, but that's been a bit harder than the first objective, Scale Online, just because if you do scale, you get busier, right? So, then it becomes harder to kind of manage uh, your schedule and things like that, but not impossible.
0: So, I guess all your business is done online and all your work is done remotely.
1: That's right, yeah. So, it started out... Maybe being only twenty percent of my work, then fifty percent of the work. Now it's almost a hundred percent of my work. Really, is just done online, remotely, um, and it's much more efficient this way. And of course, with what's happening in the world now, I think this mm. trend towards digital it's only going to accelerate, right, um, in the years to come. Because once this virus is over, uh, people are still going to remember, though, some of the habits they got in, you know, during these periods. So even those countries that were struggling to kind of, uh, you know, adapt to the online world, I think they'll change. I mean, I was speaking to a a friend of mine who's from France and another friend from Italy, and they were both saying that they think their countries haven't adapted as much as, say, China or, say, Sweden to the online world, but they think this crisis is changing things uh, because people have no choice now but to kind of go towards that direction, even older people, right? So I think uh, the next five or ten years is going to be a very interesting
0: time in the world. So you said that moving hundred percent remotely is more efficient. Yes. Can you explain why it's more efficient? Especially now you have a lot of people. I'm pretty sure that are considering moving uh, more and more remotely. What's how is it more efficient than uh, you know being offline? Well, there's a few things here. I mean. Obviously, not for every business
1: is it going to be more efficient. I mean, there are certain businesses that just can't do everything remotely so some manufacturing businesses they can maybe do some of the emailing remotely but of course there's some products and services that can't be delivered remotely but if you think about it the traditional business model that people have how much time is wasted in terms of most people spend 30 to 60 minutes commuting to work and that's twice a day so that Mm. would be one or two hours they spend one or two hours at least uh speaking to colleagues uh and not in the productive sense of the word. So many studies have shown that in a typical eight-hour workday, the average employee is actually only working for about three hours and 45 minutes. So if you're at home... Uh, don't get me wrong, it is a transition. The first maybe 20, 30, 40 days is hard because you can watch TV, you can watch YouTube yeah. or whatever. Uh, but once you get used to it, and you can get used to anything, it's like an old British saying, you can get used to anything apart from being hung. And at the end of the day, you can get used to it. And there's so many efficiencies you can you can do because you don't need to commute. You don't need to waste a lot of time. And also you can scale. That's the key thing because at the end of the day, you can't scale face-to-face. Uh, however hard you work, you can't physically meet millions of people face-to-face. You can't physically go to 16 networking events a day. It's just not mm-hmm. possible. We only all have 24 hours in a day. For most people, it's more like 16 or 15 hours once they sleep and you know uh, wash their face and do all those kind of things. So we all only have a limited amount of time in a day. So if we get used to working remotely and we put the processes in and we're efficient, it can be much more efficient. If people uh, do it in the right way, so how do you
0: manage uh, people remotely? Then,
1: I personally think that when you hire people, regardless of whether it's remotely or not remotely, it's always better to hire people who you think are self motivated. I don't know if you've um, read the book. Uh, it's quite an old fashioned book now, but it's actually still relevant even in this day and age. Called Good to Great. I forgot the, yeah. name the, owner, uh, the name of the owner, the name of the author. But he made a good point, and he actually changed my mind on this. I always used to think a good manager, a good leader, is a motivator. And I'm not saying that can never be the case, but this author was basically saying you should focus on hiring people who are actually motivated to start with. So I would say if you're going to use Upwork or Freelancer.com or the, uh, you know freelancer websites or wherever, you hire people remotely, even your existing workforce, at the end of the day, if they're not motivated already, and they have to be micromanaged all the time, then you should maybe question why they're still in your organization, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So if you can't trust people to be efficient remotely, then, well, why are they in the organization in the first place? That's the way I would look at it.
0: Mm. The author, by the way, is uh, Jim Collins. I have the book at home too. Yes, Collins, that's right. How do you make sure that at the recruitment stage, people can be self-motivated?
1: I personally think that no matter how much you do with trial and error, and I know this is not the, the answer that people are maybe going to want to hear, it's impossible to know for sure at an interview because some people are just obviously good at selling themselves or whatever. Mm-hmm. I would say what is good to do, though, is to say to people, look, I'm going to give you a trial. Um, or maybe indeed to say to people, if you're using those freelancer websites, to say to people, well, okay, how about instead of doing an interview with me, I give you a few tasks to do today. Uh, you'll be paid half the hourly rate. If you do well, uh, you'll be considered for the, the full-time or the part-time job. Um, you can do things like, of course, CRM systems and so on, and, and, and kind of, I wouldn't say micromanage people, but you can start to look at the data uh, remotely. But I haven't found any tried and tested way to get a 100% success rate. But one thing I would say is this. When I was looking at the figures, the people I've hired remotely, on average, have had a slightly lower failure rate than people I've hired from the traditional sources like recruitment consultants.
0: So you launched your business two years ago, more, more or less. Approximately, yeah. What's the most difficult?
1: Um, I would say the most difficult thing Um, always is finding the right people which is interesting considering what you just said yeah given um that we are uh breaking industry norms now what do i mean by that um i think and it's an absolute key the more norms you break the more likely you are to succeed as an individual in business in terms of uh, I, was, I was listening to a TED talk and uh, I forgot the guy's name, but he really said it in a way that I couldn't. And that's he said, you know, norms stand for normal. Normal behavior leads to normal results. Extraordinary behavior can lead to extraordinary results. So if you break societal or industry norms, you're more likely to succeed, especially if you do it with persistence and you you have enough ideas. However... If you're doing something which is different, getting our people to follow you is more difficult than getting loads of traction yourself. Because, let's say, the kind of people I'm looking to to hire are people who you know can work remotely, who are self-motivated, who don't need me to help hold their hand when it comes to giving them visas around the world. We don't want to have that kind of typical structure where you know you've got 30 people in an expensive office who are doing things a very traditional way. However, obviously, a lot of people in the market, they've got used to doing things in a certain way. And many of these people have been in the industry for 20 or 30 years because the industry I'm in is a very aging kind of demographic. It's middle-aged people in particular. They can be quite stuck in their ways. So what we found is, for me personally, to scale my own business has been much easier than hiring new people. But when it comes to hiring new people, people with less experience, younger people, have often been better than the people in the industry who have been doing it for many decades often because they can adapt themselves. That's not always the case, right? You can have people who are stubborn at any age and you can have people who are, you know, uh, flexible even when they're 70. But as a generalization, I do think it is harder to teach an old dog new tricks, mm-hmm. uh, especially in, uh, in our industry or my industry,
0: should I say. Okay. And have you been happy on how your business has developed so far?
1: Uh, yes. Um, in terms of all the kind of um, trends, uh, financial and otherwise, we have done you know, extremely well. Um, and I would say we're probably one of the fastest growing uh, firms in our niche uh, globally. And obviously, we're, we're doing very well with the current situation of, of, of remote working where we don't need to adapt to the current environment. Having said that, though, I think um, as a business owner, it's never bad to always want more. A lot of people think greed is bad, but if it's harnessed in the right way, uh, that's never a bad thing. If you always want better returns for your clients, better returns for you know, your stakeholders, if it's done in the right way, I think it can be a positive thing to always want more, always push yourself for more because often you only get what you want. You only get what you aim for. So I'm not 100% satisfied, right? But we've made an excellent um, you know, inroads uh, in the last two years.
0: You say you're not 100% satisfied. What would you do better? If
1: you're ever 100% satisfied, it's always a bit of a bad thing because I think if you are ever 100% satisfied, that's when you're going to, you know, kind of go down towards retirement and you're kind of winding down. So I think it's never good to be 100% satisfied. I think what we could do better is kind of grow the team. Uh, more in terms of scaling it more, scaling it more quickly. I also personally think that if I had my uh, chance again, I would have moved even faster towards the online model. Because when I started working remotely, what I tried to do is I would try to put my feet in both camps. And I was sometimes if I was talking to a client, I would say things to them like, you know uh, well I'm sometimes in Shanghai or maybe we can meet up even though I'm mainly remotely that kind of confuses people if you just stick to your guns and say look this is the model I work remotely like one or two months ago there was a person from uh, the Middle East who said to me well I'm going to be in Tokyo Adam can we meet up uh, I know you don't usually meet clients you know, face-to-face, but um, you know, I'm actually going to be in Tokyo. And I just said to her, well, look, if that's what you want, then I suggest you go with somebody else. And at the end of the day, she, she came with me because I was brave enough to say, well, look, this is the level. Take it or leave it. Um, and I think if I would have done that sooner, that would have been better. Um, and I think when it comes to people coming on board with us, one of the issues we sometimes have is people do see the need to do things remotely increasingly, especially in in this time. But still, some people are still kind of giving clients that second option to say, well, Mm. maybe we can meet face-to-face. And I think that's not a good idea because it confuses people. If people have a simple narrative they can understand, this is remote, this is face-to-face, that's better than trying to be in both camps.
0: Another challenge uh, that uh, comes with um, remote work Is finding clients, creating leads, and finding clients. So we're talking digital marketing. Mm. How do you do that?
1: Uh, There's been numerous ways we've done that, really we've used a little bit of paid not much but we have done a little bit of google ads facebook ads and so on um but we've mainly focused on organic stuff and um you know there's numerous ways you can do that and um what works for one person doesn't always work for the other person so to give you a few ideas um you know i get about uh, 9 million views now a month on my answers on Quora and my website gets about 70,000 views a month. And I know other people, not me personally, but they use Reddit. because um, so I think the key thing is this, there's so many people in the world doing different things that these days people are looking for an expert in their domain. That doesn't necessarily have to mean you're a scientist, uh, obviously, but they want to know somebody who is good at what they do. So something like an ad, you know i'm not saying it doesn't work but obviously it's very salesy whereas in comparison if you think about it from our side let's say we were looking for an expat lawyer and we googled something and we found their article or on a question and answer uh you know website they put a really good answer to something that we're interested in of course we're going to trust them more because it's very hard i mean you know i know some people could bs their way through it but in general. If you're having to write something down on paper or do kind of a technical video, you're showing you're an expert in your domain. Whereas Mm -hmm. something like an ad, um, yes, it it, it can work. But of course, it's more salesy and people are a bit more skeptical. The key thing I found that people have to do is uh, have an omni-channel approach. What do I mean by that? is what works for me might not work for you and what works for you might not work for some of the viewers. So what often people need to do is play the numbers game. They might have to try 20 or 30 different channels, try many different approaches to start with. And from those 20 or 30 channels, they might find one to three channels which are really killing it for them, doing incredibly well. There might be another three or four where they sometimes get traction. And then finally, there might be 15 that they fail, right? But there's nothing Mm. wrong with that. Then maybe once you've got that 20, go to the next 20, maybe some new social media that's just come out and keep trying to play the numbers game um, when it comes to uh, the channels you use. And I think a key point also is that nobody ever fails uh, because of their product or service. Usually, It's usually because they're not famous enough. So if you've got a decent product or service, if enough people see your marketing, then people will buy. Whereas if you're, you've got a world-class service, but only a few people are seeing your, you know, uh, your activity, it's going to be very hard because we don't live in an economy anymore where you can just rely on you know, word of mouth and referrals in most industries. Eventually you can, uh, but it's a competitive
0: economy now. You're a young entrepreneur, and you've already been creating a lot of traction, uh, being able to attract millions of views. Where do you go next? That's a great question, actually. It's something
1: um, I often think about myself, and it's funny that when I was in my 20s, I didn't really uh, think about it as much, and uh, I don't know why, but after I turned... uh, 30, I started thinking about these things a little bit more Um, and, you know, these philosophical questions and so on. And I think, you know, dreaming is never a bad thing, right? I actually think, I know a lot of people don't like him, but Grant Cardone's book, the was it, the 10x rule, one good point he does make is if you have very big goals and ambitions, you're more likely to achieve at least half of them, whereas people don't work hard enough for smaller goals. So, I think long term, one thing I would love to do Uh, Not only to dramatically increase what I'm doing now, uh, I would eventually like to have the biggest firm in my niche, you know, globally. Not in terms of, you know, competing with a bank. I never want to have something like a bank uh, where I'm actually, you know, holding people's money as opposed to just being an advisor. But I would like to be the biggest remote and global, uh, you know, expat uh, advisory company Uh, in the world hopefully and also um, I think one day I would like to get to such a stage where you know I could create a foundation or a charitable uh, you know uh, Mm. cause where you know I could give away uh, a lot of money when I'm uh, you know past middle age and so on but that's Mm. kind of ultra long term and and also I think education is key because we teach our children many things in the world, but we don't teach our children basic things like um, how to manage money. Uh, it's incredible. We teach them maths, English, science, French, German, in the case of, of UK schools, but we don't teach people basics about money. We might do a compound interest chart at best. So it would be great if I could actually help when it comes to education because a lot of people forget that um, how much money you earn isn't as important as how you manage the money because you know 60% of professional basketball players are estimated to go bankrupt within five years of retirement up to 80% of football or soccer players are said to go bankrupt mm. eventually so how much money you earn is actually not as key as people think it's how you manage the money in your cash flow so it'd be great if I could create some kind of educational resource uh, and just give it away maybe even for free um, mm. to schools or colleges but that's going to be many years in advance. It's just some ideas I have right now,
0: especially managing money uh, you see the the results in difficult times, like what we are experiencing now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: absolutely, and I think also many people also don't factor in uh, the effect the Black Swan events can have because mm. these kind of low probability events can Uh, affect a business or an individual's life a lot. So for example, a month ago, even just a month ago, when the S&P 500 in late February and the NASDAQ were hitting record highs, if I would have told you that even liberal democracies like the UK, France, and other countries would be implementing similar policies to what the Chinese government did in Wuhan and would be closing down large sections of the face-to-face economy, you would have said, I'm mad right but it's happened right but it was a very low probability event just one month ago that this would happen not that the virus would spread but the governments would react like this because people forget that in the great spanish flu epidemic 100 years ago both gdp and stock markets actually went up during that period from 1918 to 1920 on average because even though people were dying business was still going on ironically right because mm. uh, the governments didn't close down the economy. So that's just one example. But in the next 30, 50 years, we can't predict these highly improbable events, but there will always be these curveballs. It could be the government throws it, it could be society, um, it could be from many different things. But we always need to prepare for these kind of improbable events. And I think that's very key because a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs are not cautious at all when it comes to their cash flow and indeed their fixed costs. I think fixed costs is something that absolutely kills entrepreneurs if they need to pay a lot of salaries Mm -hmm. uh high office rent that is a killer during these kind of black swan events
0: right so let's talk a bit about that cash flow what sort of recommendations would you give to your to the entrepreneurs
1: i was in my industry for about five years before i started my own business actually more than that uh, six five or six years so a lot of um analysis out there shows that an entrepreneur who's been in their industry for at least a few years is more likely to succeed than somebody who just has a great idea, right? Mm Because often they have knowledge, they have clients and whatever. So the first thing I would say is ideally start your own business in an area you've got experience in. So that will allow you to then go to the second aspect and that's that why don't you just start small? If you're an entrepreneur in an area which you know very well, you should be able to get your own clients. You should be able to start just with yourself at home with close to zero costs, bringing in revenue because you've got experience in that area. But then gradually over time, yes, you're going to need to, you know, bring in some outside help. uh, But where possible, use, you know, things like Upwork.com, Freelancer.com. And also if you're going to introduce costs, try to introduce variable costs as much as possible. In other words, even if you spend $10,000 on adverts, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You, don't, you can switch that off any time, whereas fixed costs, it's very hard to switch it off. So I would say start small again, though, when it comes to things like adverts. If you start with $100 and it works, you know what, five times it, $500, then that works two times it, $1,000, and eventually $10,000, whatever. But start small and remember uh, spending doesn't automatically lead to more sales. There are plenty of free ways to get sales and there are many paid uh, you know, techniques that don't work. So I would say start small, build it up. And if you're in an area where you have experience in, you're much more likely to succeed compared to if you just have a good idea. Because I think there is this culture now and maybe shows like Dragon's Den and Shark Tank don't help in this regard, but many people think it's all about the good idea. Right. But in reality, ideas don't pay the bills.
0: Execution <laughs> pays the bills. It's it's interesting. I I watched a webinar yesterday evening mm. by, by a guy called David Newman. He wrote a book titled Do It Marketing. And he was saying, quote, it's amazing the results that you do not get for the work that you do not do.
1: Absolutely. And also linked to that, I think, is that... Uh, production always beats perfection. Uh, So just get something done and then improve on it. It's a bit like when I started doing, say, YouTube. My first videos were low quality, bad sound. People Mm. were sending me comments saying, Adam, can you speak up and all this kind of thing. But so what? I got traction. I got views. I even got clients from those videos. Now it's all done professionally. But you know what? I built up to that. In comparison, what a lot of people would do is, right, let's spend $10,000 on hiring a professional agency to make this look professional on video one. But they've got no clients. Mm. It doesn't make any sense, right, uh, to spend money just because you're hoping you're going to make money. So I would say the more developed the market gets, the harder it is to go into that market without any experience. So if you're going to start out in a big city or indeed online where there's more experience, uh, more, more competition, sorry, having experience in the area is absolutely key.
0: One new, one more question. You mentioned the book by Good to Great by Jim Collins, which I absolutely yeah. recommend to our, our listeners. Are there any other books you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, there's one book uh, which isn't widely known,
1: I think, by many people. It's called Oversubscribed. It's by a guy called uh, Daniel Priestley. What he basically says on that book, and it's very true, is that Many people, especially those with the business school kind of mindset, they've got it into their head that many people are, you know, essentially rational when human nature is more emotional than rational. So he gives some examples of, say, for example, in Singapore, there are more Ferraris in Singapore than anywhere else in the world, I think, per capita. But if you think about it carefully, it's ridiculous to own a Ferrari in Singapore because it's more expensive than almost anywhere in the world. There's great public transport. There are not Mm. those wide open roads like there are in Germany or the UK or whatever. And yet people buy it even though it's not rational because they want it. Mm. Um, Ferrari um, aren't losing sleep or indeed Lamborghini are not losing sleep about the fact that 99.9% of the world's population either don't want their car or can't afford it. They're oversubscribed. They only produce so many cars. The demand outstrips the supply and that's the point he's making you don't need to focus on being all things to all people so i say that book's a good one because it's not widely known in terms of our books i would say some of the typical business books are pretty um good and also anything which teaches you basics like i know it's boring but basic accounting even Um, you know anything which starts with the basics you don't need to be an accounting expert to do well in business. But if you know how to do two things, generate revenue and save money and cash flow, you've got an advantage in business. I think statistically speaking, salespeople and accountants are more likely to succeed in business than most other people. So I think if you just learn the basics about like accounting and cash flow, it's actually very useful. It's actually more useful in some ways than just focusing on creativity because it just gets down to what you need to do as a, as a business owner.
0: Great recommendations. I hope they will help uh, the entrepreneurs out there. So how can people contact you?
1: Uh, Well, there's a couple of ways uh, people can contact me. So my personal website, adamfired.com, it's linked to advice at adamfired.com. My business is International AMG, so that's INT slash amg.com and the contact details are there as well. So on my personal website, in particular, there's WhatsApp and all those kind of apps as well, which are available for people if they want to get in contact with me. And I think it's always great to kind of, uh, you know, collaborate with people, right? I'm sure you're finding the same thing with your podcast, aren't you, Lawrence?
0: Yes, it's a great way to reach out to people. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Adam, for your time. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback about today's interview. So if you have any questions for my guests or for myself, or if you'd like to be a guest yourself, send an email to contact at lauranota.com or reach out on LinkedIn. Thank you very much again. See you next time. Bye-bye.